You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the transit zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Margot Kingston in Comboy, New South Wales. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Beerpai people of the Port Macquarie region of New South Wales. We pay respect to their elders. Margot, in lockdown in Comboy, I see. Yeah, we're sort of three or four days in, you know... (sighs) When's it going to end? Join the club, all lockdown, and a different world for you. Margot, we're recording this podcast, another in our ongoing series on grassroots democracy around Australia. I think we're recording this one on the 1st of October 2021 at a very particular time. We've got the federal coalition roiling, haven't we, with climate change the big issue. The Glasgow COP26 is looming. The next federal election is looming. We don't know when. It could be November. It could be as late as April next year. And of course, this week in the National Press Club, we had the last Prime Minister from the Liberal Party, Malcolm Turnbull, excoriating Scott Morrison about the French submarines, about the nuclear submarines, and also repeating some of his denunciations of Morrison that he gave to us here on the Transit Zone podcast about the vaccine procurement failures about the design of the actual rollout failures and the quarantine failures. So we're recording this podcast today, I think, I don't know if you agree with me, at a very particular moment in Australian politics. Yeah, a moment where the Voices for Movement has clearly empowered Liberal moderates in inner city, blue ribbon seats in Melbourne and Sydney to actually speak up. And I must say, for me, to have three years after the hard right canned the neg and Malcolm Turnbull's prime ministership, to have weeks before Glasgow and they're running around like chooks with their their heads cut off. Just today, Bridget McKenzie said carbon capture and storage is the answer and we've got new subsidies for that. I don't know where it's going, but if the Voices for achieves nothing but talking in their representatives into actually representing them, that might be nice. We've got one of the founders of McKellar Rising, which is the the group that came out of Voices for McKellar to try and find a candidate here today, Dr. Sophie Scamps. And Mark Kelly, who was the famous designer and um, hander-outer of Vote Tony Out t-shirts in Warringah and who has come to McKellar, which adjoins Warringah to the north, to try and help. Sophie and her co-founder, Anya Geddes, to build a community to really take it to Jason Felinski. Dr. Sophie Scomps and Mark Kelly, welcome to the Transit Zone. Sophie, introduce us to McKellar. I've been looking at the map. It's a pretty salubrious part of Sydney, isn't it? The beaches, it goes right up to the north as far as Barrenjari Head. Some beautiful beaches along that. And of course, more to the west, we've got Karingai Chase, we've got Pitwater, Cowan water, all that's there. So it's physically a very beautiful electorate, but what's it like demographically? Yes, you're exactly right. Thank you for having us on to Margot and Peter. It is a beautiful electorate and we're very, very blessed with the um, natural environment around us, but we're quite a mixed bag up here. We have, I would say the backbone of this electorate is small business. There's a lot of small business and there's a lot of families. 
and we have different areas as well. We have some very blue ribbon, very conservative areas as well, and other areas that are very concerned about issues such as climate change. Yeah, but there's lots of young families and lots of small business. Also, I know I've spent a couple of times at various people's places. There are film directors, artists, that sort of slightly boho sort of environment along the coast there, but there are contrasts, as you say. That's exactly right. Yeah, so where where I am in Avalon, that's been a an artistic hub, I would say, but also lots of tradies and lots of small business. So it is a real mix of people and professionals as well. What about the age group? What sort of age groups? Are with a lot of young families? Mm, lots of young families. The local public schools are very big and the local high schools as well are well uh, serviced. So um, yeah, lots of young families in the area and lots of older people well who've lived here their whole lives. Just emphasising, of course, you're a GP in the electorate, so you've got a bit of a perspective on the sort of people that go through your surgery. What really interests me about this movement is people like you, Sophie, successful GP, wife and mother, happily going about your life, and yet you're thrust into a very nasty game. And I gather you started maybe just after the election when you just something hit you about climate change and you started this local organisation called One Blue Dot. Just tell me when you went, bloody hell, I better actually get involved and try and change things. I think it just grew and grew and grew. I think like many other people, I had been waiting for meaningful action on climate change for decades, really. And for me, as a doctor, we base all our practice on evidence. We practice evidence-based medicine, so science really is the king. And opinion doesn't come into it because that's when you make mistakes. And so it just seemed that there was an overwhelming evidence to show that climate change was happening. We could see it happening in front of our eyes as well, yet our government was still sort of bobbing us off with slippery slogans and not acting and muddying the waters of the debate. And so I had this growing angst and growing anxiety and growing frustration. And I think it got to the point where I thought, right, I've I've got to just do something now. And it actually was before the 2019 election. And I thought, well, if, if our political leaders are, you know, not doing their duty and they're not, you know, I just felt that there, there was an abrogation of the the government's duty to care for and ensure that the population safety and security was foremost and prosperity. So I felt, well, if our leadership is failing us, then I've got to do something myself and we can do that in our community. And I knew from conversations that a lot of people felt the same way as I did, that sort of feeling of helplessness. You know, I'm just one person. What can I do? What on, what on earth difference can I make? But I knew there was a lot of us feeling like that. So I thought, well, if we sort of, if we start a group, we can at least act, you know, in our own lives and we can act in our own community. And that was our blue dot. And it really grew. It was quite a powerful community movement where people felt empowered and sort of moved from that sense of helplessness into one of hope and action and we can do this and a a big part of it was advocacy so we started speaking as well as as well as doing practical things in our community to reduce carbon emissions and waste we also undertook a role of advocacy and we felt that if we spoke to our representatives at all levels you know council state and federal and let them know what we were feeling within the community to feed this sort of anxiety back that we really wanted action on climate change and we wanted meaningful action that that would help them come to a decision to represent us but part of the issue was we felt that we were just not being heard and and that was a very typical experience people just felt that they were not heard and it was very difficult to have your voice heard 
And, you know, whereas I would say a vast proportion of people really want in this electorate want action on climate change, our member was still voting for coal and voting along the same lines as the nationals such as Barnaby and Matt Canavan and people like that. So really wasn't representing this particular and unique electorate. Sophie, when somebody like you, a Liberal voter, says they're fed up with the lack of leadership on climate change and you've described some of the surrounding context, but going to you personally, there must be underpinning that a, a belief system, a values framework to animate that, to actually spur you to do all that. What is that framework? I mean, I think that framework is very simple. We owe it to not only ourselves, but we owe it to the future generations to actually act to ensure their their security and safety in the future. And I I think it's very simple. And one of the things that really spurred me on was when I was, one of the very first actions I did was to make a poster to put up on this area of road near us, which people do. I was doing it with the kids and my kids' friends and things like that. And And I was having a conversation with the 12-year-old boys and I said, this is going to be an issue for you guys, unfortunately. And the 12-year-old boy turned around to me and said, Yes, because you you adults have failed us, and it was it was a slap in the not a slap in the face, but it was a wake up. And I said, well, we can't leave this to the children. We just can't. We we're the adults. We have to step up and do something. And it's a strange thing. I actually, for a long time, looked around for somebody else to lead this movement in the community. I didn't look at myself. I really was looking around trying to find somebody to act as a, a leader that we could kind of work with, and had a few conversations, tried to convince a few people, and then it dawned on me. Sophie, why isn't that person you? Of course it's you. You're the one with the passion and the interest. And I would say that to anyone that's listening. If you're looking for somebody to do something, then absolutely look no further. That person is you. Subsequently talking to Kathy McGowan, she has that whole mindset that if not you, then who? It's time to step up. We need to flex that that courage muscle and step up ourselves and, and behave in a way that's adult-like and, you know, be the change that we want to see. Sophie, I gather that Jason Flinsky, your local member, sent out a, a ticker box form on what issues concerned the electorate after the bushfires and he actually didn't have climate change as an issue. So when you turned up to his mobile office, did you ask him about that? Definitely. So, yes, yeah, so he had a mobile office to meet people in the electorate And it was at the start of 2020 in February when there was still smoke in the sky from the fires and we'd all been through that horrific period of furious fires. And our member had letterbox dropped everyone with this survey so people could tick which issues were most important to them and climate change didn't appear on that list. And so people were understandably very upset about that. And so there was a lot of people at the mobile office who really just wanted to talk about climate change and we're really quite distressed. And at the end of that session, I, I don't think it went terribly well for Jason, but um, at the end of the session, I said, look, if you truly are a moderate, then we need to hear your voice. You know, we don't want to be hearing from the Matt Canavans, the Barnaby Joyces and the Craig Kellys all the time with these sort of outlandish climate denialism. They're the ones getting the, the airplay. We need to hear a strong voice from you that you want to see change and that you are representing this particular unique electorate that really wants to see action on climate change. And the answer sort of uh, that came was what actually galvanised me. He, he didn't feel that he was able to do that within the party framework because there's a party line to toe and that's what they have to do. So actually to bring about change from within the party is very difficult, particularly if you're a backbencher with not much power. 
Mark, right next door in Warringah, of course, you had Tony Abbott in Get Tony Voted Out movement. Jason Felinski is no Tony Abbott. So it's a different dynamic from where we sit. As you listen to Sophie and you're involved in that particular movement now in McKellar, what are the similarities for you and what are the differences? The similarity is it's a couple. One is Jason Felinski is Tony Abbott's apprentice. He is a career politician, and so he's not going to rock the boat. So what Sophie was just talking about in the Liberal Party, he's not going to weigh his career against representing his electorate because he wants to be a career politician. He would love to be a minister. He's been the vice president and the president of the Young Liberals. He's in. He's in big time. So he's still not going to rock that boat. And I think that's the biggest similarity. The difference is Tony used to do what he said, even if, it wasn't great. And, you know, Tony had this sort of emperor complex. He thought he was elected emperor of Varinga. He was actually representative of Varinga. But I think that's how the Liberal Party works, is once they get in, they stop being representatives and they start being emperors. And they think that we've, um, I guess, abdicated our conscience to them. That's just not right. Now, you're more to the north of Warringah, and I look at the map again and see those beaches, the beaches you know so well. Margo and I are thinking of this edition of Transit Zone as the surfing edition, by the way, because you're both pretty keen surfers, very keen surfer, Mark. I look at the beaches, and it doesn't look that dissimilar to Warringah, but are there differences in your view as you've experienced both electorates, particularly demographically? How do you see the mix? The closeness or the relative to the city where you can get the Manly Ferry over. So I think the average income in Ringa is about close to $30,000 higher per person across the whole electorate. I think there's just probably a few less tradies and a few more sort of bankers and people who work in the city because they catch the ferry. But there's a lot of young families here. The average age in Moringa is 38, and that's come down a little bit. It's pretty much the same, a little bit younger actually in, in McKellar. It's changed quite a lot over the last decade. Sophie, you were a co-founder of Voices for McKellar, one of the most successful and professional groups to do all this listening and bring people together of all stripes and stuff. You came up with a, a McKellar report that the top issues were climate change and political integrity. One thing that really struck me doing my research is McKellar is very be your best self, nice, asked Jason Flinsky to a community policy forum and his answer was, this group is not a community group, it's just another get-up. If Voices for McKellar was a business, the Australian Competition Commission would prosecute them for false and misleading advertising. How did that go down and what does that say about where he's at and where you feel the electorate's at? I think there's a bit of fear on Jason's behalf there because, as I said, the voices of McKellar really came about because people were finding that it was very difficult to have your voice heard. And I actually think that not only was it difficult to have your voice heard in this electorate and similar electorates, but we were actually undermined and dismissed as well. And when you think about if anyone had a concern about uh, climate change, they were dismissed as inner city latte sipping lefties, Mm. which just isn't the case. You know, these very reasonable and sensible concerns about the future. And then the other thing when Scott Morrison said, well, we're not going to hit net zero by discussing it in the wine bars and the cafes Mm. and the dinner parties. For the people you're trying to represent, that's a very undermining way to represent them. And it actually, I think, was a tactic to silence people. So it's quite threatening to then have a community group that is all about listening and purely listening. So 
our group, Voices of Michaela, really had a good think about how it would be set up, the framework, and we really felt it was important to be nonpartisan and neutral because, of course, we want to hear from voices across the political spectrum. That's really important. You don't only want to hear from one part of the electorate. You want to be as broadly reaching as possible. Voices of Michaela has been going out of its way to be nonpartisan to then be told that it was a, you know, a, a front for get up or something like that, which it just wasn't, you know, was really, I think, upset a lot of people. But Jason has privately apologised for that sort of depiction of Voices of McKellar. But it just reinforced the idea that it was very difficult to have your voice heard. So I think there was about 460 people that took part in these in-depth kitchen table conversations and these would often go on for an hour or two or three where you went around the table asking questions in a very respectful environment and people really had the opportunity to speak about what was important to them. The report that came out, McKellar Matters, was a really in-depth report, both qualitative and quantitative research, doing its absolute best to represent what was important to this electorate and trying to give people a portal to have their voice heard and to have that slapped down in that way again, was just, you know, yeah, it was very frustrating. So at the end of last year, you and, and Anya Geddes, who's an events organiser with World Vision, I understand, decided that you needed to form another group, McKellar Rising, to actually actively mobilise the community and find a candidate. And And this is where Mark comes in, because Mark, I guess by default, you've become a, a community organiser and builder. So how have you and Sophie and Anya approached the task of building a community so that the right candidate can say, right, I've got the volunteers, I've got the money? What's your approach there? So the first thing you do is you don't think about a candidate. You think about building a community. So the parties who want to create division, they want you to be red or blue. But my theory is you basically build a community and what you do is you foster unity. So we want to, like we did in Ringa, bring people from all political persuasions to the centre because that's the least amount of way anyone has to travel. And then you just have conversations like you did at the kitchen table conversations. You're just basically saying to people, do you want to outsource this responsibility of being a constituent in your electorate or do you want to, do you want to hold that yourself? And you can see what you were just talking about with Jason Falinski and Trent Zimmerman and Tim Wilson and all those people, they're all exactly the same. They basically they have to toe the party line They don't have any power at all, but they have a career that they want to prosper in. But our responsibility isn't about trying to stay in power. It's about trying to be represented. And if if we don't have that voice in Warringah, in McKellar, in any electorate around Australia, you're just not going to be represented properly. And the bigger picture, whoever the donors are to the Liberal Party, whoever controls the narrative in the Liberal Party, you're at the mercy of that. So... Building the community is getting people to understand that we don't want to outsource our responsibility to a party anymore. We want to hold that responsibility ourselves. And Zali is a great example of someone whose door is open. You can go and talk to her. And then in her speeches and her interviews, you can actually hear words that you've had with her in those And that makes a massive difference to someone saying, I can't do anything. What I'm asking, because I I think listeners would be really interested, is what are the mechanics of that? Do you have Facebook groups? Do you have Instagram? Do you have sort of meet and greets where you're all wearing your McKellar Rising T-shirt? How are you actually doing that? The whole premise is based on peer-to-peer communication. And in any electorate in Australia, it's about 100, I think the biggest one's about 106,000 people. So if you have 
two or three thousand people, you're only two or three degrees of separation from everyone in that electorate. And you don't need, really, you don't need a lot of money. What you need is people talking to other people. And so Facebook's a way to do that. A closed Facebook group is a really good organising tool, as much as it's, I really like it because you're not giving Facebook any money. Michaela Rising has an Instagram page, like Photoniad had an Instagram page, and it's posting personification of people's views about politics and so we're, what we're trying to do is humanise politics so it's okay to talk about it. And you can see that's happening. So on the weekend, we did a little video with Tom Carroll, who's a two-time world champion, his brother Nick, who's a journalist. And they basically talked about who's, you know, that community representative. I talked to Tom yesterday and said, hey, what's been the feedback since that? And he said, look, I've had lots of calls and people get it. Tom's a great person. He's coaching a lot of kids, deals with a lot of wealthy people, and he's saying... People understand what, what's going on and they want to join McKellar Rising because they want to be represented. And this is just, we're trying to humanise politics and personify your voice. This is just my feeling about it. But I feel like voting for a party to represent your local community is a bit of a bait and switch. Like, who are you really voting for? Are you voting for the person or are you voting for the party? And if you're voting for the party, who are you getting? Yeah. Maybe you're getting someone you don't really like that much or maybe you're getting someone who talks complete nonsense mm. and you got to put up with it. The truth is that, like, maybe when we vote for a party to represent us, what we're really doing is we're outsourcing the whole problem. Yeah. We're just saying, you guys do this. We don't want to make a real decision. If you go and have a look at the people you're voting for, like the actual human beings, mm. then you get a totally different thing going on in your head. If you want a person to represent you, not a party, then you've got to ask a different kind of question altogether. And that comes down to who is it? Who's going to represent you? Not what party, but who? Yeah. Who's the person and why? You know, we live in one of the most prosperous and well-educated electorates mm. anywhere in the world. You know, we're on top of the world here in McKellar, mm. right? This is a great place to live and it's full of smart people mm. who back themselves to the hill. We can make a decision about the person who represents us. We don't have to outsource that to a party. Residents of the McKellar electorate, former world surfing champion Tom Carroll and journalist Nick Carroll, you're listening to another Transit Zone podcast, I'm Peter Clark with Margot Kingston. Our guests are Dr. Sophie Scomps, co-founder of the Voices for McKellar and McKellar Rising Movement, and Mark Kelly, founder of Vote Tony Out in the adjoining electorate of Waringa, which independent MP Zali Steggall now holds. Mark, Margot just asked you about the mechanics. I'm intrigued by the pragmatics too. We saw, of course, the orange T-shirts in Indi. We saw the teal T-shirts in Warringah and the various colour coatings. I noticed that Sophie's using a sea blue colour on as part of her livery online. And, of course, we've seen Kylia Tink hit the ground running in North Sydney with her pink colour coding. That was a pretty obvious way to go, wasn't it? How important is that colour coding and, of course, all the livery, the flyers, etc., that go with it? That seems to be very pragmatic, that stuff. The big thing about it is, for me, is that if you've got an online community, and you know, which is you sort of have to have in lockdown, but the, the biggest part of people identifying themselves offline 
is basically I think you have to have a uniform. So in in Moringa, I knew that there were, in our closed Facebook group was around 2,000 people and I knew a lot of people lived blocks away from each other or doors away from each other but didn't know, know each other. And so once we started, you know, selling the T-shirts and we never gave any away for the reason that, you, you know, if you buy a T-shirt, you're in. If you get, get, get given a T-shirt, I got given this T-shirt, I don't really know much about it. So only selling the T-shirts is a big thing. But then once you have that T-shirt, it becomes a uniform and that uniform allows connection and and with that connection, you just have this sort of sense of connection, intimacy. It's sort of like a family instantly. And you would see people walking up to each other, high-fiving each other who didn't know each other because they had the same T-shirt on. And this is, you know, by the end of Vote Tony Out, I'd sold 6,000 T-shirts in Ringo. That's 6% of the electorate was wearing a T-shirt. And the other big thing was I, de- I delivered 1,600 of those shirts myself just because I wanted to see who those people were and I knew that there'd be media and I wanted to be able to say to the media, hey, these aren't all hippie lefties, exactly what you know, um, Sophie and Anya are doing as well. Every T-shirt's getting hand-delivered up there. What's the colour going to be, Sophie? <laughs> oh, I don't think the colour's decided, but actually I think that the Warringah really hit the nail on the head when they chose Aqua, the, you know, close to the coastline and all of that. It was incredible. We haven't decided on our colour, but we do have a fantastic colour scheme for um, McKellar Rising, which is quite funky as well and quite stands out a lot. Yeah, we wanted to make it fun and, you know, this is this should be fun and respectful. Mm. Um, when we were talking about Voices of McKellar, there was a sort of a comment that Voices of McKellar wasn't real people. And so what Mark was talking about, we're trying to get on the Instagram, we're getting photos of people wearing their T-shirt, you know, I am real and stating why it's important to them to get genuine representation. And that's why getting key people in the electorate like the Carols, like other people, we've had Fast Eddie as well, Hermalgin, lots of other people sort of fronting up, stepping up and speaking up, which is a really big thing because in our society where we don't speak politics, you know, it's sort of looked down upon. People to be stepping up and saying this is not good enough, we need to be genuinely represented by somebody, you know, we've been ignored for too long, you know, is a really big step and it shows that we are real people in the community. So, Sophie, Malcolm Turnbull in our interview said, look, it's so crucial when you haven't got a a hated MP, when you've got a sort of a, you know wishy-washy one, to get a, 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 a strong candidate. This is a safe Liberal seat. You need a, a, a Liberal who feels that the Liberal Party is no longer Liberal. How have you gone about trying to find that person? Because, boy, oh, boy, if you're a successful person of integrity, why on earth would you step into this minefield? How are you approaching finding the right person to represent and, in a way, embody the values of McKellar? I mean, I think Mark, before when he was talking about this peer-to-peer, you know, it's all about the conversations we've had. So, We started more than 18 months ago talking to people, just letting them know what was going on in McKellar, so letting people become aware. And so just building that awareness and having the conversations. We've been putting it out there. Every time we have a meeting or something, we will say, if you know of somebody that you would recommend, send them our way. We really want somebody who is from the community and does know what this community wants it's a role of service, really. Yep. It's a, it's, yep. um, and the voices of McKellar did ask that question in their kitchen table, what characteristics would you like to see in your representative, not your leader, your representative? 
And a big one was this idea of service. So it's not somebody's career path to power and privilege. It's about serving the community. And equally, very highly important was that the you know that they're going to be committed to listening and consulting with the communities. No more the emperor, but somebody who is working with the community. So they're two really strong concepts. The other one, of course, as well, is basing decisions on science and evidence and expert opinion and doing that consistently and not just doing it when it suits you or serves your purpose. That's been a big problem, you know, and I think that's what's led Australia astray for many years. You know, this sort of opinion seems to be held up equally as, you know, important as a body of scientific evidence, which is just not, you know. What you've got to do is build the community fat platform to a level that someone feels confident that, that that community is going to make a difference and they're going to win. So if you think of Varinga, the, the bigger group probably talked to 200 people. No one talked to Zali, but she she bought a Vote Tony Out shirt for Christmas in 2018 for her family. She bought four of them. I delivered them. And then over that Christmas period, they had a conversation because Zali was going to be the, the Instagram post on Newsday. And so they started talking in their family about what that, what her little spear would be. And from that came the conversation of, well, well, I wonder who the candidate is going to be. Then they talked to me. And then from that point on, they decided that they, their family could handle that and Sally could be the candidate and because they already knew that we had funding, that we had about six or 7,000 people that were wearing Vote Tony outshirts. And I was emailing 39,000 people every week or two weeks with my newsletter. So there was such a movement that Zali, who no one had talked to, thought I could do this. I could give up my career as a barrister and I can have a term, like a couple of terms or whatever she wants of service in Moringa. The Liberal Party has, in, in Pittwater, 150 members. We're only talking to 1,500 people. So absolutely, while we are building the, the the tribe and getting the word out there and building the community movement at the same time, we're also building the, the campaign structure. And so that's definitely a long way along the track. We're already doing fundraising. We're already talking to marketing and um, advertising people. We're doing the research. So it's that, that platform that Mark is talking about is being built. And so that any candidate that does come forward can be satisfied that this is going to be a highly professional campaign and there's a very good chance of winning. And one of the really strong things behind that is this you know, huge crowd of people behind them that really will support them. Any candidate that does come forward will be somebody who reflects the values and embodies the values and concerns of this community. Are you talking to people at the moment who you think could be the right candidate, Sophie? Yes, we are. Yes. How many are. How many you got? How many so far? I'd say we have four in particular. Would you consider standing? I think like Mark says, what we want is somebody, the person who is has the best chance of winning and who the community will get behind. So, I mean, I think we've still got a bit of time up our sleeve. So for me, in me personally, the most important thing is that we get somebody who can absolutely win this election. One of the things that has just amazed me in this Voices movement is that it is basically led by women who haven't been involved in politics before. What's your experience of that and what do you think is the reason why this is happening? I think we've all just totally fed up. (laughs) You know, we're all fed up. We can't take it any longer. You know, we're busy. I, I do actually think a lot of us have been very busy with our careers and raising our children and 
I would say that a lot of us are engaged but not active. So you, you're sort of listening on the sideline and I've heard Hazali say the same thing. I cannot stay on the sideline on this anymore, you know, shouting at the TV. You have to get involved. And, yeah, but it is interesting. I wasn't politically active at all but, yes, just got to the point where, and it just grows and grows, got to the point where I felt I needed to act. And then you think we've been undermined, our voices have been undermined for so long and silenced. Actually, no, my voice is worth something. And I know there's a lot of people out there in this community that feel very much the same way I do. And so let's come together and let's build this and, you know, become a strong voice that can't be ignored. Because really, you can't fight against the community. The community, you know, that's who you're supposed to be representing. But I, I would agree with you that there are a lot of women who are involved in this movement, not only here, but also in other electorates as well. It does seem to be largely women-led. How many children have you got, Sophie? I've got three children. What is your children's attitude to you, apart from being a full-time GP, being a, a full-time political activist? What, what's their reaction? So they know, they understand. So I think they, I mean, one of the reasons I'm doing this is because I want my children to grow up to know that they can actually make a difference, that their voice counts. And um, that's why I stepped up because I want them to believe that they can make a difference. Otherwise, you just feel helpless. So that's one of the reasons I'm doing it. And I think they're very thankful. I say to my daughter, oh, my goodness, I've got all these things I need to do. And she says, you're doing great, mom. You're doing great. You're doing, you know, and same with my son. Like we talk about something and, you know, he'll talk about maybe the dinner that I didn't cook the right way. And, and I'll say, but I know, but I just did this thing all day. He goes, yep, okay, good one, mom. I'm glad you are. Yeah, let's keep doing it. So it's all good. I think that's one of the things about the whole community movement is it actually makes people stretch their comfort zone. If I think back to me in 2016 and me now, I'm a different person because I've had so many wonderful conversations and for me, it's the unity part of community that has made a difference. Like in Manly, I know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people now. And I'll be in the supermarket in Mossman and some guy tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, are you Mark Kelly? I just want to say thanks for something I did three years ago or four years ago. And it's really quite amazing that it just it's a really you get you do get that unity part of community and but I don't think Jason Flincy's getting tapped on the shoulder in Woolworths. Mark, at the head of the podcast I mentioned to Margot the environment, the immediate political environment we're in. We saw the Turnbull intervention at the National Press Club. We're seeing many mainstream journalists commenting now in their op-ed pieces on the independence movement. It's it's shifted its perception generally. We've got climate change, the roiling coalition. We've got Bridget McKenzie firing potshots at Josh Frydenberg. We've got Morrison saying, yes, I may, maybe I won't go to Glasgow, etc. How do you see that actual political environment, the content of that, being of advantage to you, the people in Warringah, to Zali, and to the people in McKellar as they go ahead to the next election? The narrative that is being put out there by the Liberal Party has the stench of we want to stay in power. With the submarines, they're just trying to... It's sort of this fear narrative because then they go, well, if, it, if there's going to be a war, we, we, better, keep the, we better, better keep the government in. It's, it's just a constant sort of theme of what are they telling us now and what aren't they telling us now? And I think people are sort of over that. Can we just have a basically a really honest conversation? You know, the world, the world is being you know, dissolved around us because of bad men or bad leaders or people who shouldn't be leaders and don't have any leadership skills 
being in power. It's sort of, I don't know, I think it's very frustrating for a lot of people and I think that's what helps build these community groups because people want to go, I've had enough of this. Sophie, what's your feeling about how the the current tumult is playing in the electorate? Looks like mayhem, doesn't it? It's the 11th hour before the COP26, which is in a couple of weeks, and they're scrabbling around trying to make some sort of policy. I mean, this should have been done decades ago. They've had no plan. Big business has been calling for plan, corporate, small business, everyone's calling for a desperate plan on climate action so that we can transition towards a prosperous future. And now they're scrabbling at this sort of 11th hour to try and piece something together so that we don't look completely foolish at the upcoming climate change conference. It's embarrassing. That that, that too is a little bit on the back of the whole independent movement starting to pop their head up and then feeling threatened. And they go, well, if the meter's ticked over here, we better be do something about it because if we don't, we're going to get kicked out of power. And so again, the narrative is... Let's just go with what people want, but don't do anything about it so we stay in power. The moderate liberals have been saying this, Jason Felinski, six years, Trent Zimmerman, six years, Tim Wilson, you know, whatever. It's the same thing. They say something just to get back in and then they do nothing. So I think they've eroded their trust base. Sophie, I'd love to hear your views on whether this election that we're facing in the next number of months or early next year will also be a COVID election. Now, we sat here in Victoria listening to Berejiklian, backed by Scott Morrison, do the gold standard stuff. And, of course, we're now gnashing our teeth about how high our particular new case numbers are. I think there's a degree of resentment in Victoria that we've been the victims of a spillover uh, in this state. And, of course, as we look more widely, the Federation itself is in a very strange state. Queensland, Western Australia, the Labor states, uh, South Australia, Liberal state, Tasmania, Liberal state, they're more go early, go hard, and zero tolerance state. So we're seeing the Federation in a bit of a state. So taking all that on board, how do you see this next election in terms of the pandemic? I actually think it's larger than the pandemic. I think it's also climate change, and I think it's a failure, and, and integrity. I think it's a widespread failure of leadership from this government. And, you know, they failed to lead on, like you said, the vaccine procurement the quarantine, like you said, they've left it up to the states to really roll out the the vaccine program and also to do the public health initiatives on that as well. So they really haven't been able to step up and take the lead on these things. They haven't led on implementing a federal integrity commission, which is really important to probably the vast amount of Australians as well. That's something that people is a no-brainer for most people and people are sick to death of the rorts and the, the corruption going on. That is something that needs to happen. There's been no leadership on that. If anything, there's been stalling. And then the other thing, there's been absolutely no leadership on action on climate change. So I think it comes down to a much broader failure of leadership of this government. And, you know, there's a lot of talk and there's a lot of slippery slogans and spin. But when it comes to planning, I mean, I think, you know, they've just been shown up time and time again, you know, scrabbling around before this climate event in Glasgow, you know, scrabbling around to try and roll out a program once Delta strains already been released into the community. It's just a catch up and they've really not planned or shown leadership as able. And I think they've had their they've had their opportunity. And picking up on what Mark said in a time honoured way, do you think it could be a khaki election? And how would you handle that within your campaign about defence and the threatening Chinese, etc.? Oh, exactly. It seems like that's the old thing, isn't it? Bring it back to defence. But I would say, yes, that's an issue as well, but probably front of mind when you look at the, the research for this electorate, still number one is 
you know, safe economic management, climate change, local environment, and China is up there as well. So we'll come down to that. There's still people down on the south coast who were promised grants from the government for the houses that burnt down that haven't got it. So another announcement and another nothing happened. I guess the other thing we haven't underscored is pissing off France. The EU is a big trading bloc as well. Here we are trying to negotiate a trade agreement with that particular bloc, and France is not our friend at the moment. So we've got that. Mark, how soon do you think this election will be, and what do you see as the contours of the campaign? It doesn't really matter when it is. I think what we're building in McKellar is, I think, really special. For me, it's the unity in the community that we will foster and grow in the next couple of months. McKellar will be ready via peer-to-peer communication to make a real difference as soon as the election's called. And I have no doubt in my mind, because of all the things we learned in Moringa, that McCullough's going to do a better job than Moringa. And I think Jason Flinsky's actually, you know, he didn't, he does, hasn't had 24 years of loyalty like Tony Abbott had. And he has already eroded his 66% down to 53 that Bronwyn Bishop had. So the electorate's changed a lot in the last six, six years or 10 years. And um, I think it's, McCullough's definitely primed to make a change. And I think that I really hope that there's a minority government and that the the crossbenchers, if there's eight or ten of them, will, it'll be a historic parliament for Australia that'll actually make real change in how we live. Final word to you, Sophie, and I'm glad Mark brought up a hung parliament or a minority government. That could go either way. I mean, almost anything's possible. It could be Morrison as prime minister trying to put together a minority government, but it could be Labor. Now, how would a blue ribbon liberal seat independent go with dealing with a Labour minority government as opposed to a Liberal or a coalition minority government with Morrison? The way I look at it is that the independent, it comes back to listening to the community. So if your community wants you to act a particular way on an issue, then that's that's what you listen to. So it's about issues, not ideology. So the good thing about a community-backed independent is that they are able to negotiate and debate and discuss in a collaborative way with Uh, politicians from all sides of politics and so that's the actual strength of an independent and the other thing is it just will bring things or at the moment the coalition has to really try and win over the Matt Canavans and the George Christiansons and things like that so it's really gone way over to the far right you know to the extreme and so having more community-backed independence means that they have to actually turn their attention to the more centrist and sensible and <laughs> pragmatic <laughs> way of thinking and dealing and trying to get progress on issues and not it's not about ideology it's about the issues so for me and so that's the absolute key of what we're doing it's about finding someone to genuinely represent the unique value and concerns of this electorate and do it in a powerful way and they're absolutely right these this what we're doing in McKellar similar movements are popping up in lots of different electorates across Australia and there could well be a strong crossbench um, which would be a really interesting watershed moment in Australian politics and I think it would be um, really good for our democracy as well because I think that our democracy has been undermined by the the party politics and this whole towing the party line thing. I think that, you know, democracy is all about representing the people and I think the parties have moved away from that. Mark Kelly, 
Sophie Scombs, thank you so much for joining us in the Transit Zone. A very interesting conversation and one to re-listen to, I suggest, as we head into the election proper. Thank you so much for being with us in the zone today. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you My both pleasure. for having us. And thank you, Margot, leaving you in lockdown in Comboyne. Thank you very much. See you soon. You too, Peter. Thank you. Our guest in the Transit Zone this time, Dr. Sophie Scomps, co-founder of the grassroots democracy movement, McKellar Voices and McKellar Rising and Mark Kelly, founder of Vote Tony Out in the adjacent electorate of Warringah, which Zali Stegel now holds as a federal independent MP. If you'd like to email us at the Transit Zone, here is our email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. Your comments, questions, ideas for podcast episodes are always welcome here in the Zone, transitzonepod at gmail.com. That's our email address. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening. And please join us again soon right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the Transit Zone.